Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be having on Harvard-trained theologian Megan Watterson, and the two of them will be discussing her newest book, Mary Magdalene Revealed, The First Apostle, Her Feminist Gospel, and The Christianity We Haven't Tried Yet. So tune in as Megan leads us through Mary's gospel to illuminate the powerful teachings it contains and a very different love story it reveals from the one we've come to refer to as Christianity Today. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch us live, you can always access those show archives at 1150kknw.com. And I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, but Benny, I'm so embarrassed because I knew that Alternative Talk 1150 KKAW has a a podcast on Podcast One and iTunes where I thought it was just all of the shows, which that exists. But I I just discovered Sunny in Seattle in iTunes this week. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's kind of like piggybacking over to other platforms. Yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'm just announcing to everyone out there that if I've had people say that sometimes accessing the archives mm-hmm. can be a little bit cumbersome or perhaps, you know, like me, I listen to everything as a podcast on my iPhone. So you can find Sunny in Seattle uh, via Podcast One and iTunes these days, which is kind of exciting. I mean, I kind of look at it as far as, I mean, if we're going to spread sunshine where it hits all platforms, why can't you? I mean, well, you know, it's just the way it is. I appreciate it, but this just goes to show, like, the Eric Crema, who's you all may have heard if you've listened to the show enough. He's around in the background a lot. He's, you know, one of the um, managers um, at KKNW. Yay, Eric Crema. He sent an email out in January 2019 about this whole Podcast One business, and I thought it was, well, I just totally misread the email, did not give it any credit. So here, You had a lot Sunny- going on, I think. Well, Benny, but come on, I have been I have been talking about getting Sunny in Seattle on iTunes, and this just also goes to show you, I've talked about this, um, and I don't want to take up too much time because I am so freaking excited about our guest today, but I will just say that there's this fun tool from Abraham Hicks, if any of you all are followers of uh, Esther Hicks and Abraham, um, about, the, it's a tool called basically the Universal Manager, and we all have a to-do list that's three miles long. And so it can be a little overwhelming. And so this is a tool that I use a lot. Um, It's part of how I got the microphone that's sitting in front of me right now that I'm using to broadcast from the house. Um, But uh, basically you put anything that uh, you don't have time for today that's kind of in the background that you it's not on your triage list to be addressed immediately. And you put it on a piece of paper that you just call the Universal Manager. And basically, let the universe work in the background while you are doing other things. And sometimes things will just come together from that list without you ever having to take action. And I will tell you that this whole iTunes thing (laughs) is such a blessing. And it's been on the Universal Manager list for quite some time now. Um, I've had some starts and stops with this project for a variety of reasons we won't go into. But in any event, it happened without me even knowing that it happened, and there it is. So try that tool if you've got a to-do list that you can't quite manage at this point. Um, and then I also wanted to announce just quickly, um, thanks to Benny, thank goodness for the extraordinary Benny, um, and KKNW, I am now going to be simulcasting from Seattle and Petaluma. And then there's a lovely community access station here. Yeah, thanks, Benny. Yeah, it's called KPCA. So you think about Petaluma, California, so KPCA. And uh, so I'm going to be uh, broadcasting from their studio now. So no more of this connecting from home business where (laughs) poor Benny's having to manage the sound quality since I've been in Petaluma. So anyway, a couple of fun announcements for you. Um, Benny, just quick check in before we bring Megan on. How are you? Doing great. Again, wherever the sun shines, you will be too. <laughs> I can't stress it enough. So congratulations <laughs> on the next venture. Of course, we're still going to be here. We're yeah. just going to be outsourced a little bit somewhere else. And yes. maybe down the road, you never know, somewhere else. Exactly. Well, that's <laughs> the idea. We'll see where it wants to keep growing. Yeah, and, girl, um, come on. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I have to say that our guest today, before we came mm -hmm. on air, you know, mm -hmm. um, her book is so full of these synchronicities and the the trail that you start to be led down once you kind of dive into the whole spiritual path. And um, and, and her life has many, many synchronicities that um, we're going to talk about today. But I think it's a perfect segue to go ahead and bring her on. Um, and thanks again, Vinny. Um, okay, so Megan Watterson, um, if you have not heard of her before, um, she is the author of Reveal, also the Sutras of Unspeakable Joy and the Divine Feminine Oracle, as well as a co-author of How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. She is a feminist theologian with a Master of Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School and a Master of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary at Columbia University. Megan facilitates the Red Ladies, a community of radical love that lets her preach about female saints, mystics, gurus, and poets who inspire and teach us to live in service of love. She leads retreats and workshops on the Divine Feminine, Mary Magdalene, and the Soul Voice Meditation. Her work has appeared in media outlets such as the New York Times, Forbes, the Huffington Post, and Marie Claire. She lives with her old soul son and his exuberant goldfish, Bob. And the website you can check out if you want to find out more is MeganWaterson.com. And Megan is spelled M-E-G-G-A-N. Waterson is W-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N. So MeganWaterson.com. Megan, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I, I have to ask first, how do you know a goldfish is exuberant? <laughs> Oh, you haven't met Bob. You walk into my son's room, and it's almost as if he's barking. I mean, he's like a dogfish. He just—he's a goldfish, but he—it looks like he's well, either barking or swearing at us or doing something. He's just his mouth opens and he swims all around, and he almost bangs up against the side of the fish tank. He's just—he is the most exuberant little being ever. It's adorable. I love that. That's amazing. Well, you know, I usually dive in with interviews to hear someone's backstory before we get into the book or the resource or whatever we're talking about. But I kind of want to approach it differently today, if that's okay with you. Um, and I want to kind of set the context. Of course, the book we're talking about today is uh, Megan's latest, and it's called Mary Magdalene Revealed. Um, and so I want to set the, 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 I guess just basically a groundwork here for what we're talking about, because I assume many people in the KK and W listening audience have heard of the gospel of Mary Magdalene, but perhaps some haven't. Um, and can you just give us a little bit of history around the gospel of Mary Magdalene, set the context for this gospel and some of the others that were discovered in the same time period that are not included in the new Testament canon that we've come to know today? And kind of the history of, you know, the church and its influence on how all this came about. <laughs> I know, that's like, that could take that two hours if you could just, you know, yeah, summarize you, that. You have six or seven years to uh, talk <laughs> about. Um, yes, no, I do feel honored and grateful to be able to answer that question because it did take two degrees to be able to be able to answer it distinctly. Basically, and this is the best way I can describe it, is that um, a lot of people aren't aware that post-Christ, there were many forms of Christianities. Christianity was really plural initially. And there were all these different groups that were trying to make sense, basically, of what just happened. And so this, this was the origin of why Gospels began to be codified. It, originally, they were most likely oral, and people would tell these stories about the disciples, about those who actually walked with Christ. And so there all these various Gospels began to be codified, most likely in the first and second century. And so these various forms of Christianities were basically uh, trying to begin to have a, a cohesion and to begin to have a sense of like, okay, what exactly is everyone saying happened and saying that Christ said and um, what that ended up forming into being was a, an incredibly radical uh, Christianity that a the Roman hierarchy. So at that time in the first century, 
the Roman hierarchy was deeply, deeply entrenched. And what I mean by Roman hierarchy is that the emperor, of course, right, the, the Caesar, the emperor, was the ultimate, even beyond God. Like, the emperor was the ultimate, and then the lowest would be a slave. And women were sort of one notch above a slave, basically, and then depending on whether or not they're, because they were owned by their husbands, essentially, and so depending on whether or not they were literate or illiterate, if they were married or enslaved themselves. But so that, that hierarchy was deeply, deeply entrenched, and, and what it expressed was that existence could be ranked right? Mm-hmm. According to this hierarchy. So someone's existence meant more, for example, if you're closer to the top. Um, and all life went about uh, demonstrating that, you know, people who were slaves had no worth and had no rights. And what this earliest form of Christianity defied and radically denied was that it Existence could be ranked according to a hierarchy. So these early Gospels, some of them, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, they express this need for us to transcend an idea, an egoic, an ego idea, that existence, whether we're male, female, whether we are citizens or non-citizens, whether we are enslaved, right, Greek, whatever, no matter what we are, who we are, our existence cannot be ranked. And so, to a certain extent, that form of Christianity is saying the first is the last, and the last is the first. Yes. That there is something that exists within all of us that cannot be ranked according to a hierarchy. And so, the Gospel of Mary was one of those earliest forms of uh, Christian scripture that was defying the Roman hierarchy and defying that whole idea that we can be ranked according to existence. And specifically for the Gospel of Mary, saying women are as worthy as men, that a, a woman is as capable of speaking on behalf of Christ or the divine, or that that women are they're not to be seen as less than or lower, you know, anything different from a male, which was, you know, I mean, to this day, that's still <laughs> radical in some circles. But then, you know, we have to try to go back to the first century and how women were viewed, which were, they were owned, they were, you know, uh, property. So to say that a woman actually was as worthy as a man, like she had just the same intrinsic being exist within her than that exists in a man, that was an absolutely radical, radical idea. Even for Peter, everything. one of the other apostles, he did not right. like it so much either. <laughs> he couldn't handle it. No, he yeah. couldn't handle the truth. No, he really couldn't. He couldn't, and he exemplifies, so at the end of Mary's Gospel... Peter, who is the one, ironically, who asked her to tell them the secret teaching that she has heard, which they have not, mm-hmm. um, after she tells them all of the things that, that she knows that they didn't receive from Christ, um, he basically says that he doesn't believe her, and, and questions her worth, which is yeah. so phenomenal and powerful. He actually used the Greek, Greek word for worth in the Scripture. How yeah. could, you know, like, it's her worth that's being questioned, and fortunately one of the disciples comes to her defense and says, if the Savior considered her worthy, who are you to disregard her? Right. So, but unfortunately what does happen is she is disregarded, and when, so, you know how I described Christianity as like this radical confronting Roman hierarchy and um, it was actually illegal to be Christian until mm-hmm. the fourth century. You you would be sentenced to death if you confessed to being a Christian. And we have documentation of this, for example, with Saint Perpetua, um, 
who was killed in 203 for confessing she was a Christian. It was um, heretical, and it was uh, considered illegal because it was such a threat to the Roman hierarchy. So until the 4th century, this was a radical renegade cult. And then in the 4th century, when Constantine wanted Christianity to become the empire's religion, they had to kind of look through <laughs> all these various Gospels and say, okay, which ones are the ones that are going to fit a Christianity that we will shape to look a bit more like the empire? Yep. Right? Let's make it a little more palatable. Let's make it a little more hierarchical. Let's make it look like a religion that reinforces the systems of power that already exist. And so men could retain their ultimate, you know, power within and become the ones who are have the ultimate spiritual authority. You know, so so apostolic succession from one apostle to the other is only going to go down through the men. And in right. order to do that, they couldn't include Mary's gospel because she's clearly the first apostle. She's the one, she's the witness. She's the one who Christ first says to, he calls her to go and tell the others that she has resurrected, that he has resurrected. And she's the only one that can receive him, that can see him. And her gospel explains why she was the one who was there at the tomb. Like, it wasn't yeah. just an accident, right? She didn't just happen to be at the right place at the right time. This was this was as it was intended, because she had gone through a, po- a process, which is what Peter wanted to learn from her, of being able to receive a vision from within her. So so she her gospel couldn't be included, because it would set a precedent for women being in roles of spiritual authority within the Church, right? It, it would contradict the Christianity that they were trying to create in the fourth century, which right. didn't exist before. Yes. And then so there were a number of books uh, that were that gospels that were not included that yeah. um, have since been discovered. I think um, I don't, I, and I look to you for pronunciation. I've heard it Naj Hamadi or Nag Hamadi. Yes. The Nag Hamadi finding that library was, um, incredibly significant because it helped um, it helped religious scholars begin to have a clearer sense of the, that you know spiritual terrain that existed right after Christ's crucifixion. So the the earliest communities of the Christ movement it helped them understand uh, the different thoughts and the different ideas uh, that they were teaching and saying that Christ taught, and they um, all contradicted, or not necessarily contradicted, they added to, or made far more complex, the Christianity that was codified in the 4th century by Constantine, under Constantine, and that the Church Fathers basically ended up creating from forward. So they're referred to as the Gnostic Gospels. Um, but Mary's gospel was not found among the Nakamati findings. Uh, her gospel was found in three different places so far along the Nile in Egypt, and they were buried in urns or in caves. And the fact that we've found three, that doesn't sound like a lot, you know, these days, but to find scripture that's that ancient and in three different places and... Um, it suggests that this was highly, highly uh, copied. They transcribed, obviously. There was no publishing houses. It was the monks that transcribed the Gospels. And so this was a highly revered scripture. And um, what church historians have been able to discern at this point is that after the, the current version of the Bible was codified in the 4th century, um, there was an edict that went out, and that edict said that all other Gospels that have not been canonized are to be destroyed. Mm. So 
this is when, you know, the deserts became just rife with buried treasure because there were some industrious monks who thought maybe we shouldn't destroy, you know, this. And so they refused. Obviously, uh, much of it was destroyed, and, and some of Mary's gospel was destroyed even as it has been saved because we have missing pages from the beginning and the middle of her gospel. I just have to um, but, stop you here because I thought that this is the first I've heard of this, but I just think this is this is to me huge that in all three copies of the manuscript that have been recovered, the first few pages, first six pages, and then a middle four pages have been removed in all three of them. Yeah, that seems wild to me. What was in there, Megan? <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I wish I knew, and I and people have asked me since my book has come out. Um, people want to channel it for me or oh. <laughs> they want to suggest, you know, that they know the year in which we'll find these other missing pages. I mean, it is, if we think about the trajectory of when these texts were buried and then what, now that we've discovered it, it was in the late 1800s that um, they began to be found, um, although her gospel wasn't published until 1955, which is pretty crazy. But if we think about the trajectory of it, um, it is quite fascinating. Why now have they surfaced? And will we find more? I, I mean, there's there's no telling. We might. Or maybe we have, and it's been suppressed. Um, yeah. We don't know. But clearly, there was incendiary material. Um, and from what we have of the rest of her gospel, we can piece together that this was clearly about a power that exists within all of us where we can receive a vision. So if we can have direct knowing, um, which is the, the word gnosis in, in Greek, is um, it's not just intellect, it's experiential knowledge of something. So it's something yeah. that we experience ourselves. And so we know on a very um, tangible level, if that makes sense. You know, it's not, it's not a thought that's given to us. It's an, it's an actual experience that we have. And in her gospel, she's asking Christ, Mary is asking Christ, when I see you in a vision, how is it that I see you? You know, with what, like with what aperture, you know, with what, what aspect of my humanity allows me to see you? from within. Like, how is that happening? And Christ uses the Greek word new, N-O-U-S, and that word in Greek means the spiritual eye of the heart. So Mm. they're talking about a form of vision that we can acquire from within ourselves, which would then basically, you know, allow for direct knowing of God. And, And this would complicate our uh, allegiance or our submission or our going to a church and wanting to receive that instruction from outside of us. Yeah. You see what I mean? So, so yeah. it sort of takes out it's the, the radical idea is that we contain then an aspect of the divine that allows us to have a sense of uh, direct connection. Yes. And that I, I just, um, this is probably a good time for us to take our break. Cause I've got a couple more questions to unpack this with you. And I, I don't want to open a can of worms and then Benny, <laughs> Benny say, when's our break? <laughs> um, yeah, but I'll just read this quote. So the, the documents that are the gospels that we're talking about, I mean, specifically here today, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, but also some of the others who were ordered destroyed, like the secret gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Philip, uh, uh, thunder, perfect mind. Um, All of those, basically, this is a quote from Megan's book, the commonality between all of these early Christian sacred texts found buried in Egypt is that they spoke of this hidden, more human and feminine side of Christ, of Mary Magdalene's importance and of salvation as an inward act of personal transformation, which, of course, um, you know, this is just now my personal comment before we go to break, but very different than the Christianity with which I was raised. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back from the break. Um, So you are listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am joined today by Harvard-trained theologian Megan Watterson. She's got a fantastic new book out, Mary Magdalene Revealed. 
And we will continue diving into this, the history of Mary Magdalene, what you haven't been told, what was suppressed, and what will be very, I think, vital for all of us to know and embrace as we move forward and evolve as humans, if we are going to uh, get a little more conscious and perhaps even stay alive on this planet. So um, we will be back in just a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage, as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story, and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice, and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched, unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available today on Amazon.com. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Alternative Talk 1150. We're on your radio at 1150 a.m. We're on your HD radio at 98.9 Channel 3. So many ways to listen. We're on the web at 1150kknw.com. Streaming live audio and video as well as MP3 archives of many of our shows. So many ways to listen. And now... We're on your smartphone or tablet. Download our free app in the Apple App Store or Google Play and take Alternative Talk 1150 anywhere you go. So many ways to listen. Right now, Doctors Without Borders medical teams are operating in some of the most remote and dangerous corners of the world. When front yards become front lines, when disaster erupts, when disease rages, when communities collapse under crisis, at the crossroads of conflict and epidemic, where there are no hospitals, that's where we operate. We go where conditions are the worst because that's where we're needed most. In nearly 70 countries, we're saving lives threatened by violence, disease, malnutrition, and catastrophic events. Donors are vital to our mission your response is critical to our response in places where a few others will go. That's where we operate. Learn more at doctorswithoutborders.org. You found us. Maybe you've been guided to listen. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. And I just have to laugh because what often happens uh, on break, and this is like the the blessing and the curse of live radio is you have timed breaks. And so Megan and I got into a conversation about her um, uh, history in going through not only um, uh, divinity school, let's see, Master of Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School, and then Master of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary at Columbia University. And I was telling Megan that um, I have been very drawn to go to uh, both <laughs> divinity school or seminary school. Um, and um, but it's funny, Megan, what, what Megan was was sharing with me. And I'd love it if you would share with our audience, because I think it's really important. It's part of the breadcrumb trail that you followed to get where you are. But um, I was going to ask you if we'd had more time on the break would you go back to those same schools? And and do you mind sharing, Megan, what you were telling me about how you chose the schools that you went to? I just had an intuitive sense, um, you know, a, a gut knowing that there were certain professors that I needed to study with. And that was really what pulled me. It wasn't so much about which school, it was, it was who to study with. And mm. that that knowing really, really led me, that, that just gut instinct of knowing who I needed to study with. And, and for Union, uh, that, that was Hal Tausig, and I didn't know at the time, of course, that he would later compile a new New Testament, which yeah. is, to me, so phenomenal because he added back in the Gospels that we were talking about were excellent. Included in the fourth century, he added them back in and created 
really a testament in, in my heart that includes all the various strands of Christianity. And, you know, Mary's Gospel is there, Thunder Perfect Mind is there, um, and also a phenomenal scripture, one of the earliest that we actually have. It's, it's, it's the Greek, dates back to 70 AD, and that's the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Mm-hmm. And that helps us understand that this earliest form of Christianity had female apostles, had female priests and prophets and seers and ministers. The earliest form of Christianity was much more radical than the one most of us grew up with. Yeah. And speaking of which, Megan, um, I just have to say that, you know, I... I was raised with the story that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. The prostitute, and, right. Yeah, and I was horrified. Like, I consider myself pretty well. I mean, I love Elaine Pagels. You and I were talking about her over the break. Another resource for anyone out there that's interested in this conversation. She is a religious historian. I believe she's still at Princeton. Is that correct? Or she? I know yes. she was at Princeton yes, for a while. Yes, yeah, I mean, she has like super Ivy League pedigree, but anyway, she she is a great resource if you want to continue this study further. Um, but I, you know, I consider myself pretty well read in this genre, um, and I was horrified to learn that Mary Magdalene was not only not a prostitute, but that this came. And I'd love for you to tell the story more, but that the Catholic Church even uh, corrected itself back in like the nineteen. 19- yeah. 60s it was, it to was say an apology yes yeah. a formal apology for tell us about that please this. well so um as i mentioned mary's gospel wasn't included in the codification in the fourth century because of the issues that would arise with women's apostolic authority because mary's clearly the first apostle in her gospel or among the first apostles in her gospel and so her her gospel is not included, but what 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 was also um, an issue was sexuality, you know, and the and the human body. So from the fourth century until about the sixth century, Christ became more and more divine and less human, and Mary Magdalene became more and more and more human and quote unquote sinful. So by the sixth century, Pope Gregory the Great. Uh, had a homily 33 where he said the penitent, the, the faithful should consider Mary Magdalene the penitent prostitute. And he basically conflated uh, scripture in order to say that the seven demons that Christ draws out of, you know, the, this woman who's in Luke 8, um, that is referring to her promiscuity, like her sexuality. Like it, to him, it meant, oh, she must have been a prostitute. There's nowhere even that the that seven demons is referring to prostitution. If we look at Mary's Gospel, we know that there are seven powers. They're not demons. They're powers, which is incredibly uh, devoid of judgment. But so Pope Gregory conflated those two things and um, said that she was the woman who was loved, was forgiven much and loved much, but that she was a prostitute. We know from scholars. We've known for over 500 years that she wasn't a prostitute. And scholars like can verify that she was actually a, an educated, wealthy woman from, Mag- from Migdal. She was Mary of Magdala from a town in, in, uh, along the Sea of Galilee. So we've known this scholars, religious scholars have known this for over 500 years. The Church formally apologized for Pope Gregory's conflation in the 6th century, um, in, in 1969, and then Pope Francis, as I was beginning this book, uh, restored, or there was um, there's a, a strange word for it. I think that it was called the restitution or um, rehabilitation. It was referred to within the Catholic Church as the rehabilitation of Mary Magdalene, and she has now been named, instead of the penitent prostitute, her, her name is the the apostle to the apostle, mm. which sounds wonderful, and and it is definitely a step up from the prostitute, which was never true. However, she's still not considered an apostle herself, you know. So um, this this 
making of her, this was not um this was this again it was this was not an accident like this this it had a an agenda because Pope Gregory and and the early church fathers wanted to make sure that this apostolic succession and that the church fathers would have the control over spiritual authority and that women would not have a role or a part or a say in the formation of the church, which they did, you know, before the fourth century. Right. Yeah, it's just, it blows my mind. And it it just reminds me of a statistic I heard once from Dr. Kelly Brogan, and and this is like uh, analogous in the medical field, but like it, it, it takes an average of 17 to 20 years for new information, evidence of inefficacy, inefficacy or harm to reach your doctor's office. And I was just thinking as I was reading your book, it takes literally hundreds of years for evidence of inaccuracy to reach the pulpit. Like what is being right. preached, right. even when the right. Pope is issuing these corrections, it's still right. within Catholic churches taught or in my Protestant church that I was raised in. Right. Like it hasn't reached the pulpit yet. And that's just a travesty. Has, exactly. Thank you for that. That gives me chills that you're saying that. Exactly. And that that is, uh, I mean, a, a hope, a dream, a wish, a prayer for writing this book is that it will, is, is that there will be, you know, that her gospel, her voice from within her gospel will finally be acknowledged and will be preached from pulpit. Yeah. Well, I want to be a part of that movement, Megan, let me tell you. (laughs) So talking about the message that will be preached in the pulpit going forward, can you give us the Cliff's Notes of Mary's Gospel? So my, one of the opening scriptures that we have, because again, we're missing the first several pages, but one of the opening scriptures, so Mary 2-2, is every creature, every nature, every modeled form exists in and with each other. This is something that Mary said Christ said to her. Every creature, every modeled form, every nature exists in and with each other. That statement to me is so profound and and really is the most eloquent way to describe love, because love is love, it must be unconditional, right? It must reach everywhere. Like, there must be no place where love cannot reach. I mean, there, there, it has to be unconditional for it to be love. And so, if, if there were one, you know, distilled message from Mary's Gospel, it, it is that we are all worthy, that hum, human existence cannot be ranked according to a hierarchy, right? That no matter our race, gender, sexuality, however, citizen, non-citizen, we, we cannot be ranked according to some sort of external idea of a hierarchy. That's the ego. What the heart says is that we all have intrinsic worth and that we are all ultimately, which is how the early Christians referred to each other, brothers and sisters. You know, that there is a uh, a commonality that transcends anything the ego might try to divide. Um, Christ in the in the Gospel of Philip says, "I am the one who has come from what is undivided," which is such also again such a powerful statement. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ego likes to d- divide, and the soul, which rests in the heart, according to Mary's Gospel, the soul is what unifies and, and what brings us. A, a deeper clarity of vision of what's really true. So her gospel is like a roadmap on on how to begin to see clearly, right? To see past these seven powers of the ego, which blind us and confuse us and make us act in ways that aren't indicative of who we really are. Yeah, and I it's interesting also because there if if the message if the most important message from her gospel is that we are inherently good, then this brings up the idea yes. of sin. So, uh, I would love it if you would kind of go through, you know, where did that idea of sin come from? And then in her gospel, those seven powers, do do you want to should we go through those just at least list what they are so that people can kind well, of identify with them or how do you do I, this on a short call? <laughs> Yeah, I, I really there the seven powers are what will eventually within Christianity become the seven deadly sins. So mm-hmm. 
But I think what's most important is that to understand is that within Mary's gospel, they're not demons, they're not sins. They are powers. They're considered powers. And and that is just, it, it's such a, a, a phenomenal difference because there's no judgment there. It, right. it, it reads more like, okay, here's an ingredient level to be, here's an ingredient label to being human. Like yeah. all these seven egoic, you know, climates or powers, this is what we're in for. Like, this is what we've signed up to be, is that we have these climates of rage, or we have this power of rage, we have this power of darkness or ignorance, whatever, whatever it is, that that is a power that is at some point in our life going to try to overcome us and overwhelm us. But the soul can see the ego, can recognize these powers, and, and can awaken while we're in them. So what we want to practice and what we want to try to do is to be able to keep coming back to the heart to see with this, the, the word that Christ used in Mary's Gospel, the new, N-O-U-S, to be able to see with the spiritual eye of the heart so that when we are enraged, right? When I mean, when someone comes at us, especially like, you know, a family member or, you know, when someone triggers us and provokes us, we can just in, and it's often referred to a blind rage, right? We, we mm-hmm. can just, so they come at us with their ego and we come back, we respond with ours. And then it's just back and forth, back and forth, sometimes for years, right? right. For our whole lives. And what, what Mary's gospel is saying, there's a way to awaken while we're in that blind rage so that we can see it for what it is, right? Which, which yeah. disarms it, which, which absolutely changes everything. Because you de- then in that moment, bring love to where it has never been before, right? So instead of responding to someone's ego with our own ego, we instead respond with love, which is what these ancient Christians and in all of these Gospels that weren't included are saying, is that there's a way that we can return there's a way we can resurrect in this life, which is what the Gospel of Philip uh, focuses on, that we want to resurrect in this body, in this life. Yes. Now, the word for death in Aramaic is simply existing elsewhere, which I hmm. absolutely love. Aramaic is, is the language Christ spoke. So if existing elsewhere is a death, then a resurrection to be, to be able to come into this body, into this moment fully with the eye of the heart, right? With the spiritual eye of the heart. That's when everything shifts, when yes. that form of resurrection happens. And that is one of the things, Megan, I have to say that my certain things over the past several years that I've been learning culminated in reading your book. And I just want to say, you know, when I first started my spiritual journey and everyone, well, even in Christianity, they say God is love or just go back to love, return to love. And it always seemed it was like, but how, but, but how right. in the human body do right. I do that? And then I started learning, okay, first I got obsessed with the Heart Math Institute and their studies on the, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the effects of the heart. And then Greg Braden, who has some Cherokee in his lineage, talks about Shante yeah. Ishta, yeah, single eye of the heart. And so there are now these practices where, and then of course you talk about in your book, and I'm going to murder this name, but Hesychists? The Hesychus, yes. Hesychus, yes. yes. So it's so like it's every wisdom tradition returns to this. Yes. <laughs> yes, and that's what they did. They wanted to have a singularity of presence within their heart to be able to experience this new, I know you asked this mention in Mary's Gospel, that yes. Christ is saying we are meant to be able to become, to become one with within the heart. And you have a practice that you have created or adapted from your study of the Hesychists and other sources that basically, do you mind telling us about that, your soul voice meditation that basically is the way to go back to the heart? It's so, it's very simple. It's deceptively simple because we, we can do it right now. The, the skeleton of it, the basic practice is just three breaths. So with the first breath, you're going to close your eyes as long as you're not driving <laughs> and just 
in 10. We, we have no idea how powerful that, that is to intend. You intend to enter the heart with the first breath. The second breath, you intend to meet the soul. To meet that aspect of you, love, the ultimate, whatever, however you want to describe it. But, or your true self. A lot of people resonate with that. So your, the second breath is to align with your true self. And then the third breath is simply to surface now seeing out from the eyes of the heart, from, from that spiritual eye of the heart, the new. And so when you open your eyes, you, you have that sense of being restored again, of going inward, connecting, and then opening your eyes. Um, that practice, that sounds very, and that's just, you know, the most basic uh, practice of the soul voice meditation. That alone can absolutely transform your entire life. Just those three breaths and that intention of returning to the heart. Because if you do that, if you remember to do that before you scream back at your spouse or before you, you know, get into your car angry or whatever it is, if you just give yourself that moment to take three breaths and go back to the heart, it changes the trajectory of what then is going to transpire. Yes. And Megan, are you familiar with HeartMath's quick coherence technique? That they do. No. Okay, this is what's so crazy about it is so you know heart math is really trying to quantify the power of the heart, not just as an organ for pumping blood, but but literally to affect consciousness and the collective consciousness of the planet. So they have a three-step quick coherence technique where they have actually hooked people up to electrodes to look at the frequency of communication between the heart and the brain and body signals and all of the things. And by dropping, it's basically you breathe. You bring your awareness to your heart space, and then you recall someone or something that you feel care, compassion, gratitude, or appreciation for. And when people do that quick three-step thing, literally everything changes in the body, and they are measuring the effect that that frequency can now have to affect outside of the body. So basically what you came to through your own spiritual journey, they are quantifying scientifically. And it's, (laughs) I mean, it's so cool. (laughs) Well, so this this is, Within Mary's Gospel, uh, Christ says, you know, how wonderful you—he says to Mary, how wonderful it is that you, uh, like, that you can look at me unwaveringly, uh, like, that you don't falter at seeing me. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's saying how wonderful she is, that she can see him and not look away. And then he says, there where the new is, N-O-U-S, there is the treasure. So— the, the heart is the treasure. Like this, this is, you know, and of course it's not just the organ. It is this mediator between the worlds. It is this, um, for me, it's, it's like a ultimate cathedral that I can enter. Um, but th- this is where everything changes is inward. And yeah. I think th- that's what's so compelling and so fascinating about her, her gospel and about why we're finally hungry for it now is because we have been looking outward for thousands of years for salvation, for wisdom, for the truth. And so we're returning to what we originally knew, which is that the answers are within. And I think it's resonating on a very deep level that we already know this. We already know this. Yes, this is a remembering and this is the time to remember. Yeah, and this is, it brings in the, the, a question that I, you know, I can't, I can't get off the line without asking you, Megan, because it's so funny. One of the first questions I drafted for our interview before I had read your book, but I just wanted to ask you this is in my own spiritual journey um, through various things, not just, you know, study of the, the uh, wisdom traditions or the Gnostic gospels or any of the above, but I had come to believe that Jesus did not come to save humanity, but to show what is possible for us when our DNA is fully activated, when we are, when our consciousness has uh, evolved such that we are, um, you know, far beyond where, yes, exactly. And so (laughs) reading in your book, um, if I can just read a quote here, and then we can talk about this a little bit. 
Christ wasn't understood as being, uh, as sorry, let me start again. Christ wasn't understood as a being to follow and idolize, but rather as a master of this path, this transformational process, this path that Christ walked, not because he was the only one who could walk it, but for us to see that it could be done. I feel like we're right. finally ready to grasp that as right. opposed to looking to, you know, for Christianity, at least the way I was taught, you have to accept him as your savior and then he forgives your sins and then you get to go to heaven. Like that never made sense right. to me. I, I broke out in hives the same way you did when I would read those things. <laughs> but can you speak a little bit about who from based on Mary's gospel, who Jesus was and what his role is in our lives in the you know few minutes we have left? Megan? Right. So, oh, so another Greek word that's very important that shows up in Mary's gospel is anthropos. And that word means fully human, fully divine, not 50-50, but 100 and 100. And this mm-hmm. is what Christ became and what he helped Mary become also, which is her, her gospel is a testimony about how she walked the path that Christ taught her to, to become fully human, fully human, fully divine. That's what the anthropos, the child of true humanity that our gospel talks about, is being able to be this ego with all these seven climates, right? Not judging ourselves that we fall into that, but also being fully the soul, right? The, the love that is love, this, this limitless, eternal love that the soul is and that we can experience. It's, it's to move that story forward, right? That it wasn't just Christ that became that, but this is a path we can all walk, that he taught Mary to walk and that she became, and that we can become also, that we can begin that process again and again of being fully human and fully divine. Do you kind of think, Megan, as you're talking, I just I have to ask this, just your your sense about this, even if you don't have actual evidence of when this will happen, but that perhaps those missing pages will be found in the near future because we are finally ready. Like we wouldn't have been ready for it when the originals were found. You know, I, when the... I do. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that, that my sense is it's, it's the trajectory, you know, it's that we weren't ready. We weren't ready to own that much of what it means to be human thousands of years ago. Yeah. We weren't ready. And so we demonized uh, Mary Magdalene and, we made her out to be the prostitute, and we separated, we divided the human and the divine again. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we divided them. And Christ said, I am the one who has come from what is undivided. So now, in having all these scriptures and these gospels surface, it c- could be a collective consciousness, awareness, that we are ready to begin to bring that, to unify those ideas mm. of what it means divine and what it means to be human. I love this so much. I mean, Megan, I could talk to you for hours about this, but I'm looking at the time and we have um, just about under a minute left. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap things here. But Megan, it has been such a pleasure and honor and a joy. I'm actually shaking right now. I'm so I haven't been so excited and fired up about something in a really long time. And I'm just really feel honored and blessed to have spoken to you about your book, that your book came out when it did, because I know where I'm going to be turning my intense study these days <laughs> toward these gospels. Um, so I have been talking today with Megan Watterson, uh, a Harvard trained theologian who has a fabulous new book called Mary Magdalene Revealed. Um, and it also has a wonderful resource page with everywhere you can go to find out more if you're as hungry for this topic as I am. Megan, thank you for having joined me today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And you've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off.